Welcome to Remotely Creative, a RimCAD podcast where we talk to artists, designers, and wildcards about how they're surviving in the era of COVID-19 isolation. I'm your host, Rob Flattery, and our guest today is Jack Ludlam, a fine artist and photographer whose work combines analog and digital mediums to create a hyper-realistic yet minimal aesthetic. Jack, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited. It's my first podcast, so I'm excited to all right, we're breaking new ground, breaking you into the podcast world. Um, trying new things. It's been trying a lot of new things lately. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, what's the year been like for you so far? Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been really weird. It's been, um, it's kind of tough because, you know, a lot of my year relies on, you know, gallery shows in public settings, um, talking to people in person, explaining the work. And then that's kind of how I make, you know, new customers and new clients. So um, this year has been difficult. It's definitely been uh, a lot of products have been put on hold or just canceled, but luckily there's, you know, people still advocating for small business and artists. And so luckily I'm still getting those like, you know, on some online sales some commissions and stuff like that that are really, really fun. Um, but yeah, trying to trying to make some shifts to you know get things to pick back up a little bit more consistently. Yeah. Um. So, is your do you have a separate studio than the home, or you work from the home, or how's that work? Yeah, I have a, I have a separate studio. So, um, I I live in the Jefferson Park area. Okay. Um, my studio is in the Sloan's Lake area. That's where I am right now. And um, just with considering the fact that I make um, I do my own printing in house. Um, some of my framing is done in house. I, I really do need like kind of a fairly large workspace. Um, so yeah, I found this space about man. It's it's almost been three years, and uh, yeah, it's it's incredible. It's just kind of like a raw warehouse space, but it's it's my own, and uh, you know, free to do whatever I want, which is amazing. But uh, unfortunately, they're tearing the building down. Of course, um, of course. <laughs> I, was wait, I was waiting for that. They're putting yeah. condos there. How much do you want to bet? They are putting condos. It's a corner lot, so they're putting condos here. Um, so yeah, I'm, I, uh, I I just signed a new lease on a on another space, and uh, it's going to be a really big change. I'm going to be more of a public facing space. Oh, nice. Um, so I've always had kind of studios that are kind of tucked away. You know, people are welcome to visit, but you wouldn't just walk by and walk in. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to see how long it takes for me to get really sick of people walking, <laughs> walking in. Or you start a coffee bar in there. I think exactly. Or start, start if the, if the artwork isn't working out, could do coffee or another brewery. Why not? Yep, exactly. We don't have enough of those in Denver. Never enough. Yeah. Um, so d with that transition of you don't live in your workspace, how is that, is that been somewhat of a normalcy for you like oh there's some normalcy i go to my studio instead of turning around like yeah it's been that this place has truly been like a lifesaver because i mean i work alone and i live alone and if i had to spend of course for the first you know month or so i was very much pulled up at home you know i'd go on walks and everything and i'd stop by the studio because i can i can walk here um but without this space, I would have gone mad really, really quickly. So it's been a really, really wonderful way to escape just kind of like the monotony of being at home every day. So it, it's, it's been great. I'm very, very thankful to have a separate space to safely go to. 
Nice. Um, so, you know, you're a photographer. Tell us a little bit about your, you know, technique. Are you, what do you shoot on? You know, is, does that matter to you? Um, is it more about the printing? What, what goes on with your philosophy and your, your work? Yeah. So the, I mean, I shoot mainly still life, um, some portraiture, but not necessarily in the technical, like classic sense of portraiture. Like I do a lot of hand portraits. Um, I, in college, I was super inspired by Richard Avedon's work in the American West. That was like the Mac, like the Holy grail of a body of work to me. I thought it was just stunning. Um, so I kind of wanted to, you know, do that in my own way and not to compare myself to that at all. Right, right. <laughs> not at all. But um, super inspiring. And I kind of wanted to take my own spin on that. And um, I grew up in Ohio for the most part. Um, I grew up around, I, I, I'd help out on farms here and there. I, I was very lucky to live kind of a middle to upper middle class life. I've always been lucky. Um, and, but I was around a lot of farming communities. I helped out on farms um, and that subject matter kind of inspired me, like the more rural Americana, um, blue collar type of work has always been insanely inspiring to me. So I, I try to take that subject matter and there's you know exceptions to that, but um, I try to focus on subject matter that pertains to that. Um, really visceral, uh, detail oriented. And, um, and to do that, I, when I was only shooting film, I was shooting medium format and large format to okay. get that real gritty detail. Um, and the same thing when I shoot digitally, I'll, I'll, I'm shooting medium format to make sure that those, when you get to the print process, you're getting as much lean in detail as you possibly can, you know, to really make it, um, as almost hyper-realistic as possible to see cracks, crevices, rust, imperfections. That's like the, the coolest part of any object or person to me. Nice. So you're from Ohio. Are you from like Northern Ohio area, central I, Northern? I was in, um, so I went to uh, most of middle school and all of high school in Columbus, Ohio. Okay. And I lived like 35 minutes North in Powell. So we were like, it was like right on the edge of suburbs and agricultural land. So like on one side of our property was this new suburb that they built. And then on the other side was like one of the biggest sheep farms in central Ohio. So you kind of had the best of both worlds. All right. So yeah, you're not a skyline chili guy. That's more. So no, I can't handle it. I've, I've, I've done it a couple of times, but it, it tends to ruin my day. <laughs> it's the cinnamon. It's nothing else in there. It's the cinnamon that they put in there. So oh, I know. my brother-in-law is all about it, but I, I can't pull it off. Yeah. I, th their chili dogs are the best, but you know, that's my personal opinion. Um, <laughs> so did you come out to Colorado to go to Regis? Um, yeah. So I was not going to go to college was definitely not, you know, I almost failed out of middle school, almost failed out of high school. I almost failed out of my freshman year of college. I just, I've, ne I've never been a very school oriented person. Um, and, but luckily my family was like, they, there were two things that they were going to make me do. One of them was get braces, which I did. The other one was go to college. Um, which I'm glad they did made me do both of those things. But um, yeah, I ended up actually flipping a coin on where I went to school because I, I didn't want to go. I was just, you know, I was ready to get out of school. And um, so, yeah, it was between Regis in Denver and Western Washington in Bellingham. Okay. Um, 
had no idea what I was going to study. Like I said, I wasn't really into the whole school thing, but super glad I ended up where I did. It gave me some really cool opportunities that I wouldn't have gotten at a larger school. So it ended up really working out. Yeah, no, I think that the small school experience, um, I see it in our students a lot. Like they, they get a lot more personalized attention. And if they are in that, um, you know, they weren't the best students, like they just didn't care, you know, because at public school for the most part is just run them through, make them, you know, take the test. And, and this is such a different experience. So um, I, of course, went to like really large public schools, but, you know, I was in the art department, which was its own like little niche. So it was actually really nice. Um, so you graduated 2013? Yeah, yeah, like halfway through, halfway through 2013, I studied abroad in Australia and got into all these art classes that I was super excited to take. And then when I got there, it turns out they were all full. Oh. So, so I, I actually, I had, I was like, because of that, I was kind of on the four and a half year program. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I did four and a half years of Regis, graduated with um, a major in fine arts with an emphasis in analog photography. Okay. And has your, you know, over that last seven years, has your work changed uh, a lot? Are you still sticking to the same um, structure that you did in undergrad? Or, you know, obviously it's probably matured, but are you still yeah. same ideas? Sim similar ideas, uh, refined a lot for sure. Um, I've, since Regis doesn't really have a huge arts program, you kind of had to figure things out on your own. So not to say that it wasn't a good program, it was just small and very limited in its scope. So like when, you know, we didn't have like a studio photography class. So like I had never worked with a, a lighting kit until after college. I'd never like worked with an, a flash. I'd never learned any of that stuff. Okay. So um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's just taken time. And luckily I've met like a lot of really talented friends that have kind of, show me the ropes of different techniques and using different materials. Um, I mean, if people see my work, it's definitely very like recognizable because I've stuck with that aesthetic, not to say that won't change in the future at all, but um, yeah, it's, it's, I would say it's, it's sticking within the same genre very much so, but it has gotten better. It's gotten stronger and especially on the printing side. I, I've really, uh, I've gotten a lot better at, at using um, the printer, I the equipment I have to its, you know, capabilities. Nice, what kind of printer are you using? Um, I am on an Epson 9900, so the okay. big like 48 inch wide. Um, and it's amazing, I've had it for like four years, but I mean like literally the first two, I would say year and a half I had it, I didn't even know you had to do nozzle checks. Like I didn't know you had to clean oh. the printhead. Like I didn't, I didn't know any of that. I had no idea. So it took, you know, three and a half, three years before I figured out like proper workflow. And because it, we just didn't really know that. I, and I'll admit my photo professor at Regis did teach us that, <laughs> but I was not paying attention. <laughs> it's better to learn by, screwing something up and then figuring it out. All right. 
Learn trial by learn. fire. When, when you when you spend you know X amount of dollars on a printer and it's breaking, you're gonna figure out how to fix it. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Because that's that's not a cheap printer. It's a good printer, but not a cheap printer. Um, so, you know, your work has a very timeless and somewhat traditional quality, um, which seems to preserve the character of the objects and celebrate the beauty of the mundane. What inspires your work and uh, the objects that you choose? Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, it's, it's tough because like it's, um, I, I always, not to change subjects, but I'll, I'll bring it back around, I always, found myself being very judgmental of other artwork around when I was growing up. You know, you'd see an abstract piece at a restaurant and like, I would tend to always, especially with abstract work, I would always look at it and be like, anyone can do that. Mm -hmm. And my mom, who's a painter, she really hammered into my head like, well, do it then, just do it. And I never have. So a lot of people look at my work and they say, well, it's, you know, it's just an object on white or it's just a set built on white. And, you know, all these, pro you know, people talk about Lightroom filters, which I don't even know how to use those. But I mean, it's, it's always been easier to try to emphasize those objects in a way that they're always kind of treated as specimens. So you can really appreciate the detail that makes them special. So as far as choosing those objects goes, a lot of it has to do with, with age. You know, I, I'm sure that you saw some of the photographs that, you know, most of the things are very aged, really, you know, patina, they've yeah. been worn and weird. And I think that's a really special process. Um, and especially when you're photographing man-made objects, it's cool to, see the way that nature impacts those man-made objects over time and really be able to lean into that detail. Um, and then a lot of this stuff is nostalgia based for sure. Growing up in Ohio, like, you know, finding, I, you know, I remember growing up hunting in Ohio and you find a white tailed deer, like shed, like an antler. And it was like the coolest thing you found ever, you know, like you, you like treasured it, you put it up on your shelf or you find arrowheads. Um, stuff like that became really special to me growing up. So, it's kind of about associating storyline with those simple objects and trying to bring out the detail in those objects the best as you can. So nice. I think that's somewhat explained. Yeah. I hope I did an all right job with that. No, it was good. And, and when you brought up like the objects that you would find out, the arrowheads and the, the deer antlers, I was like, oh, okay, I'm from Tennessee. Like I was raised in Tennessee. So it's very similar, okay. um, you know, just go out and find something. So uh, yeah, they're like little treasures. It's awesome. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, do you feel that uh, your work has um, like a cultural relevance with kind of that blue collar aesthetic or blue collar, you know, I want to say people, but yeah, from the blue collar background upbringing. It's a tough term to dance around because I don't mean it to be degrading to any, because right. they're really like a, a group of it's a, it's a work ethic that I've always looked up to. So I mean that in the most, you know, complimentary way. Um, I am, I'm always of the opinion that I'm not, you know, like I, I know I'm not making high art. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not changing the world of photography or, or fine art photography or whatever you want to call it. 
Um, it's just aesthetic and principles that I appreciate. And I think bringing those both objects and people into a different light that's a little bit more refined and contemporary is something that is important to me because it continues the importance of this imagery, these objects, these people, but it brings it into a new light where it's, I mean, this, it almost seems like I'm talking bad about my own work, but you know, you go into a Cracker Barrel and it's like the most over the top, we live in a fishing lodge decor ever, but like, or Bass Pro Shops or whatever, you know, there's taxidermy all over the walls. Well, that stuff had relevance at one point and was like beautiful decor or beautiful artwork or whatever it may be. But, you know, it's, it's 2020. And if you can bring that same feeling or those same images or that same appreciation for natural man-made whatever into a contemporary aesthetic, then I think that has a real place. And as opposed to feeling like you're in this, you know, old dingy space that feels dated, it gets elevated a little bit. It get, gets brightened up, it gets brought into the modern day. So I, I think that's what I've been trying to do is kind of elevate, utilizing those similar stylized objects and aesthetics, but bringing it up to date. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, speaking of Cracker Barrel, I used to know, um, this is years ago, someone who worked on like the visual team for Cracker Barrel, they went out and bought all that stuff. And so, um, you know, this was in late 90s, early 2000s. So they still had smoking in the restaurants. So they had a policy where they would put every all the new stuff that they found that wasn't antiques, but you know, that looked antique, they put it in the smoking section. So after a few weeks, it looked old. So <laughs> it's hilarious. I mean, that, the, the last time, I mean, you know, growing up in the Midwest, like my uncle's favorite restaurant was Cracker Barrel. Yeah. So whenever we meet up with him, we'd go to Cracker Barrel. And I remember the smoking section and I remember there was zero division between the smoking section and the non-smoking section. They had some very thin plexiglass behind <laughs> the lattice. Um, so, yeah, that'll do it. That works. Yeah, it's totally fine. No, no nothing to worry about um i rem i think i remember when there wasn't a smoking section or a non-smoking it was just you went in and people just smoked if they wanted to so oh, man. good old the good old terrible days yeah yeah and florida they still have uh like places that are like that or they did when i lived in florida so there's still a couple uh a couple sneaky dive bars around denver that that kind of are pretty relaxed about those rules as well I would, I would imagine. So I imagine that's everywhere, but you know, I, I, I'm just thinking about Cracker Barrel now. Are, are you a biscuit or a cornbread guy? Oh, I'd be a cornbread guy, but more than anything, like we'd usually go there for breakfast or lunch. And I, you know, I was a kid and I, I was a French toast guy. I was, okay. I was always French toast, no matter if it was breakfast or lunch. That's what I was getting. Nice. Uh, French toast sounds good. Yeah, they serve breakfast all the time. So oh amazing what a concept i'd love it i, I think everywhere should do that because sometimes you want eggs at eight o'clock at night so um so you in addition to your fine artwork you also um create commercial use work right like commercial work yeah so i mean 
definitely limited commercial work, but um, it's it's tough because as soon as as soon as people hear you're a photographer and you do that for a living, they assume one of two things. They either, and this is not everyone, of course, but most people, they either assume you shoot weddings and like senior portraits, or they assume you do more commercial work that's, you know, like you're shooting commercials, you're shooting advertisements, stuff like that. Um, so one thing that I will happily admit is that I'm not a well-rounded photographer. I don't do it all. If you ask me to, you know, shoot a family portrait, it's going to look bad. It's, I have a very specific skill set when it comes to utilizing my equipment mm -hmm. and the way I print and the way I edit or the way I process in the dark room or whatever it may be. So there's very specific um, opportunities that have come up over the past, you know, five years or something where I get to work in a little bit more of a commercial setting while still totally utilizing my aesthetic and the technique that I've gotten better at and learned how to, you know, work with over the years. So a lot of it, even though it is on the commercial side is still the same processes that I would be using on my own work, which is wonderful because that's what I like to produce. Right. So um, things like, uh, like I did the whole family Jones labels, which are all black and white hand portraits, which they all have like characters associated with each label, you know, and they have whole personality traits that go along with each label. It's pretty incredible how much thought that they put into each of those characters. And then um, I did a lot of work for this company, Filson out of Seattle, where we, they're a clothing company, an American made clothing company where we'll, We'll build out outdoor sets, but they'll still be on a white backdrop. So you kind of get that like elevated aesthetic where, where it's tough to figure out like, wait, is that inside? Is that outside? Did they build that? Did, you know, and um, that stuff's really, really fun. Yeah, I, I love doing that stuff. It's definitely, it stresses me out a lot. I get stressed out very easily when there's other clients involved. Of course. Um, but it, it, it is really fun and it tends to, even though I'm still, you know, shooting the way I would normally shoot, it definitely tends to kind of push what I'm, uh, what I've been doing in a new direction. Nice. Yeah. So you mentioned Family Jones uh, Distillery. You also work with uh, Berkeley Supply Company. Yeah. Yeah. I've worked with my buddy Eli owns Berkeley Supply. Um, I've done a little bit of everything there. He's nice enough to let me utilize some wall space in there. Nice. She, you know, so we'll, we'll move some some big frame pieces out of there, in and out of there, you know, every once in a while. Um, I've shot some really random stuff for him. He carries, like, really high-end American-made uh, clothing, um, mostly menswear. But um, so I've done a bunch of random stuff with him. We've done some really fun, unique projects where we're, like, his big thing, he specializes in uh, selvage denim, so, like, selvage jeans and... Um, so we'll, you know, let someone wear out their jeans for like two years. They wear them almost every day. And then we'll shoot like a still life portrait of those jeans, kind of kind of a before and after thing. Okay. Um, so yeah, there's definitely ways to like introduce it into more of the business side, you know, more, I don't want to necessarily say corporate, but a little bit more commercial, a little bit more businessy. Um, there's definitely ways to introduce it, but the people kind of have to like that. They have to want that aesthetic because it's what I know how to do. Yeah. As soon as, soon as people kind of change it, total, you know, you'll have so many people come to you and say, Hey, we'd love you to shoot, 
this commercial, we love the way you do it. And then as soon as you start talking, like looking at, you know, samples and looking at a storyboard or whatever it is, it's totally going in a new direction. And then I'm instantly freaking out because I'm not going to be able to deliver what they want. Yeah. Don't, don't screw up your style. I mean, that's, that's the reason uh, you, you exist. Speaking of jeans, you mentioned jeans and someone wearing them every day for two years. And this popped in my head. Apparently you're not supposed to wash jeans. Did you know that? Yeah. So with the, that, and that technically, so I'm no expert. And if Eli listens to this, he's probably going to kill me. But um, apparently with raw denim, you're not supposed to wash it. Okay. With like Levi's and stuff like that, just kind of like normal jeans, like with some stretch in it, you can wash them and it's it's fine. But with the real selvage denim, the high-end stuff, the really amazing like heavier weight stuff, you're literally supposed to, you like wear them for like six months, you don't wash them. They tend to not smell somehow. I don't know, it's science. And then you like soak them in a bathtub for 10 minutes after six months or something like that. And they're back to new. Wow. Yeah. I heard um, you can like roll them up and put them in the freezer. Yeah. 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 And that like kills the scent. Yeah. yeah that too. So I don't, I don't know. I still wash my jeans. So. I've learned, I've learned more about jeans from that guy than I ever cared to know. Well, now, now you, you put that on your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> Bean expert. Denim expert. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Obviously, with Eli and Berkeley, you guys, were you friends before you had that relationship? Um, and then that's how you got into it? Or did you become friends after this working relationship? Yeah, well, I mean, I definitely friends before. So like Eli, owned, like I said, he owns Berkeley Supply. It's on Tennyson. Um, and he, so Regis is right down the street from there. And so I'd ride my bike up to Tennyson and I'd go to a barber shop that was around there, and I would. So you went to a barber shop. Yeah, so I, I would go to a barber shop that was on Tennyson, and then I would go to Eli's shop, and I just thought it was really cool. I was like a young hipster loving kid, you know, like I just wanted to look cool, mm -hmm. and, and he had all the coolest, nicest stuff, and so I would just like hang around there with those guys and, and bother all three of them, and and um, eventually he was like. He asked me to like cover a shift for him or something and i was like wow yeah coolest coolest job ever and through that i met a, a, almost all of my denver friends uh now and a lot of artists i've met through that a lot of local really incredible artists i've met through there um a lot of incredible filmmakers uh, I, i've met some really great people through that berkeley supply connection for sure nice is the barbershop you went to spruce it was proper. Oh, okay. Yeah, proper. I, th I think I think proper's closed now. But uh, um, yeah, I used to go to proper back in way back in the day, like their first two years of being open. And it was just like I was so young, and I was like super green, and just like wanted to be around cool people. So like, and they were all older than I was, and and so now my whole friend group is. Um, like usually five years or so ahead of me, which I try not to compare myself to because, you know, they're having kids. My friend, my friend Adam just had a baby. His wife had a, Kate had a baby today. So like, I always feel like I'm behind and catching up, but I just need to remember that I'm not in there. I'm, I'm not there yet. Right. 
Nice. You know, you'll get there, right? You'll get. Oh there. yeah. Oh yeah. So, um, you, you, um, you've got this this friend group that you you know have worked with and it's kind of branched out. But what advice would you give someone wanting to to um, network and increase their client base? Um, I mean, honestly, if, if you're if you're going into more of like the fine art world or the photographic world or even the filmmaking world, go to art shows as soon as the world is hopefully real again. Like, yeah, go to art shows, meet people at art shows, talk to people. Don't be afraid to talk to people. Even if you don't have a, like, I, I didn't, I still don't have like a spiel that I have when I walk up to someone. Like, it's totally off the cuff. And sometimes that goes terribly wrong. <laughs> um, it happens, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah, it happens and it's embarrassing. And I'm, I'm the type of guy that like, I say one dumb thing and, and like, I'm at home like yelling at myself at night for saying. <laughs> that stupid thing um but no yeah I, as long as the world can get back to normal i think it really is important to meet people in person you know i oh, totally I, having that personal connection i would have never gotten um into super ordinary gallery which was like my first gallery deal kind of um i would have never gotten there if, if i had just kept emailing them because i was already emailing them like a lot these like really long-winded emails trying to explain myself um were those ever bad you think yeah like i yeah i finally you know got to meet pedro and and pedro saw one of my pieces at his friend's house but like, it wouldn't it, it would have never happened had it not come down to like face-to-face -face, talking about things talking through ideas talking about other people's work because uh -huh. um, it doesn't necessarily have to be like you just spitting out what you do um people that are in that situation hopefully love art as well and they want to talk about it just as much as you do so talk about what you're into it's like you know it's it's a great way to do it so i, I really who knows what the future holds but i that's one of the things that i look forward to the most is going to art shows meeting other curators other gallery owners other artists themselves that's like that's the best yeah, I, I would say, you know, be yourself is always a, a good one. Don't try to fabricate anything. Just be yourself. People just want to get to know people. And if they're nice people, they'll, if they have an opportunity, they'll, they'll reach out. That's what I always tell people, but no one listens to me. So. And, and in the art world, there's such, there's such an excuse. If you're weird, it's fine. It's totally fine. Like if, if you're not the most well-spoken, comfortable, outgoing person, it's kind of a look like people kind of remember that, you know, and it's totally fine to be that way. Cause you, you make your own thing. You're, you make your own product. You don't, you don't need to be, you know, the, the most unbelievably outgoing person. You just kind of gotta do your thing and be fine. You know, messing everything up. every once in a while. You know, you put it out, put yourself out there a hundred times. Somebody's going to bite a couple times. Somebody, right? somebody will bite or somebody will remember you six months later that it's it's all it's it's always a slow burn for me it's always like i'll email you know a, a design firm these days and i'll send them you know a little brief portfolio and an artist statement and i never almost never get a response back and then a year year and a half later i'll get an email saying hey jack you know saw this uh 
this red wing boot photo you did, can we do this for this hotel in Bozeman? You know, something like that. So it's, it's always just like throwing it out there, just letting it be and, um, and kind of moving on, keep, keep reaching out. Nice. So uh, travel seems to be, you know, a theme throughout some of your work. Um, is that, is that accurate? Um, I would say like, I, or maybe I, you're moving into like having some sense of, you know, tr you have to travel in order to produce some of your work. Is that? Totally. I, so, so like some of the first things, or I guess it's more of so you have to always be looking around, like always be open to looking around because some of the first, like the first photographs that I really sold that people like, people wanted and I'll never forget it was this old logging chainsaw that I found in Roslyn, Washington, which is like an old mining kind of logging town. Mm -hmm. And it was this guy's grandfather's chainsaw. It had been sitting in this barn. I kept driving by and see, I could see the, I could see the bar on it, but I couldn't see the whole thing. And I was like, damn, that'd be so cool to photograph that just like a still life, get all the detail. And I finally just like ended up knocking on the door. So I think, always being open to looking around no matter where you are, depending on, you know, what your medium is, is really important. But I think for me, it's, it's fun to see what different regions, different states, different, you know, areas hold and what is, what they hold important to them. You know, if you, if I go, if you've ever seen the show American Pickers, mm -hmm. they pick through old barns, they find antique, you know, it's become a massive hit and I'm such a nerd about it. I love it. But um, I'll do some similar things when I'm traveling, you know, uh, on a road trip. If I see an old barn, I'll knock on a door. I'll ask if I can look around. I'll ask if I can buy stuff. You know, I'll do a trade for a print, whatever they want. Oftentimes, people don't care at all. Um, but I think it's interesting seeing what different parts of the country hold. Pacific Northwest, ton of mining equipment ton of logging equipment and then you go into Ohio and you get a ton of farming equipment, Iowa farming, you know, like it's very, um, you could almost make a map out of like the types of things you find between states because they're very much clustered together. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Um, American Pickers that this is the second or third time American Pickers has been mentioned on the podcast. So that, there's a theme <laughs> with American Pickers um, it, where it's filmed or excuse me, where their office is, not where it's filmed, but where their office is, is in Nashville um, at this place called Marathon. It used to be Marathon Motorworks. Have you been there or do you know about it? I've never been. I've seen like the the rebuild that they did in there and everything. Uh, it's, it's really cool. It's got a lot of history to it, that's for sure. Yeah, we used to throw rave raves in that building in the 90s. Um, in the early 2000s. In that building, the, it was the sketchiest building ever. Um, and then, uh, obviously, you know, American Pickers is there. Uh, a few of my friends, their studios in there. And I'm talking like production studios in, in that yeah. place. Um, and there's a concert venue at one of the other buildings that's across from it. I ended up seeing uh, Slater Kenny there a few years ago. I just happened to randomly be in town and my friend Jeff's like, Hey, I have uh, two tickets. I saw that you were in, in Tennessee. You want to go? I was like, sure. Why not? I've seen them before. So. so um, yeah. yeah. You see, so you have a whole different, 
history with that building. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I've been in that building when, um, like, you know, people are, it's like, it was two floors, um, and people are like dancing on the, the top floor and it's so horribly put together because it was, you know, hundred years old or whatever that, uh, things would fall. And so one time somebody was walking in and like a board fell and like knocked them out. So, um, as they were walking up the steps, it was not, it was not insulated. It was not, you know, a, I think we had to like run electricity from, generators i mean it was not a uh we rented it and we had insurance but it was not that's impressive i didn't i didn't expect that i thought i thought you were fully sneaking in so you you pay bills there oh yeah yeah the the guy who owned it his name was barry he was a guy i you'd meet him at like uh the mcdonald's parking lot to give him like 500 bucks it was envelope of cash yeah but you get insurance so you know in 1990 eight a million dollar liability po policy for a for like a all-night party was 275 bucks so oh, man. i don't know what it is today i'm sure it's probably much more expensive because that was 100 years ago or 20 20 something years ago but no i, I just had to up all my insurances for the new studio space that i'm moving into soon and it's it's not fun it's not fun i don't like changing any of that stuff no, but you know, as soon as something happens, you're going to be glad that you have it. Oh so, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. We, you know, uh, you were obviously here during the big hailstorm, what, three years ago. Yep. So at my whole house, um, you know, we had just moved in a few months before. Um, so whole house, new roof on a brand, we had to get a new brand new roof. We had a brand new roof, everything outside, both of our cars got totaled. Um, so it was it was nice that we had insurance. It was like the first time that I'm like, okay, that's why we have that. That actually um, that hit Regis where I went to school really hard. It smashed out like half of the windows in Main Hall, which is like the oldest building mm -hmm. there. But I remember I was actually on campus when that got to be worse. I, there, I, there's a dark room there that I still have access to. They don't have dark room analog classes anymore, but I can still go use the dark room whenever I want. Oh, nice. So, it's amazing. I can leave my stuff there. No one touches it. It's, it's, all, it's awesome. Um, but I remember I always wear my AirPods in, you know, in the dark room while I'm working. And I just remember hearing that hail hit the roof and I had no idea what was going on. I was scared the crap out of me. And I ran outside and I just immediately saw all this hail. And I was like, Oh man. Yeah. It was, that was no joke. Did I wasn't hail those were softballs that were yeah, falling at the sky for real yeah um our campus you know i don't know if you've been to our campus but you should definitely come by since you're really close um but you know we have like 14 buildings and they're all historic and every single one of them got hit um you know we got all new roo roofing now which we, we had like cedar cedar uh shingle roof on a few of the buildings like original so have to replace that um that that day i actually just ran home because i live about three minutes from the campus i just drove home to to grab something um, and to run back and then as soon as i pulled in i got out of the car and like something hit me i was like ow and then and then i realized oh it's starting to hail and so i ran inside and then within 30 seconds it was just downpour and 
it wouldn't stop. And I walked downstairs. I was like, all right, I'm going to hop on this meeting on the, on the phone or video call. And my wife kept coming back, you know, down the stairs. She like walked down. She's like, um, your sunroof is gone out of your car. And then she came back down and she's like, um, my back windshield is gone. And then she walked back up. She's like, um, all the stuff out back has holes in it, like the shed and this and that, and the grill exploded and, and all that. And it was just kind of like, all right, well, um, and I'm trying to have this like meeting and there, everybody else is still on campus and they're in a, in a room that doesn't have any windows. I was like, do you guys hear anything? And they're on, like on a floor down. They're like, yeah, I was like, you should go look outside. And then they were like, all right, the meeting's over. And so, you know, that people had like ran out to like try to cover up their cars and they had huge welts on them. And I mean, it was, it was like the weirdest thing. And then I was stuck home for like a week. You know, I, I could have walked to campus, but we couldn't, we couldn't drive either of our cars. And, uh, it's it's nothing compared to what's going on in 2020, but that was a memorable day for sure. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I, I, just give it, I don't know, it's what, uh, middle of October, may, maybe uh, November is going to have the new hailstorm, but it's going to hail frogs. Might, you Very never beautiful. know. <laughs> I'm honestly ready for anything at this point. I, it, what I, it'll just break my soul like one percentage more each time, but it's a slow, you know, it's a slow curve. It'll, it'll, it'll take a while to take me down. So are you ready to start traveling again? Have you traveled during... Uh, covid times at all i was actually lucky enough to get home to ohio right before the actual shutdowns happened so my parents still live in ohio um i i was got home and then i ended up quarantining there for a month um so that was both amazing and also you know you go nuts i love my fam my whole family is absolutely incredible but after living alone for so long, you know, like it's just crazy to spend a month with, with anyone. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was great. I gained like 15 pounds cause I was just eating all of my mother's food. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, but no, I haven't, I haven't done a ton of traveling. I drove to Joshua tree once, oh, which nice. was awesome. Um, I spent some time in, I've spent actually like a decent amount of time up in Montana, just driving up there. Um, but now, now I think I'm locked down for a little while. This, the, the studio move is, is a, is a really daunting big switch for me. Um, and I have to remodel it myself. So I, as soon as I take ownership over that new studio building, I'm like, all right, we got, I can't lose a ton of money on this. So we got to remodel it as fast as possible. And then hopefully, um, be safely open to the public, you know, like, Definitely not going to be doing any events, not going to be doing any shows, but you know, if people are walking by and, and they've got a mask with them and they want to check out the work, then, then that's kind of the idea behind it. Nice. Nice. Well, it sounds like, you know, you've got the studio move um, planned, kind of opening it up to people coming in. I think that's awesome. Uh, anything else that's on the horizon for you? Um, you know, I've got with, with all the, uh, well, with the, with the year in general, like I said, I think at the beginning, you know, the big projects kind of went away. So it's really, um, it's really trying to shift uh, into building these more private sales. You know, like I work a lot through 9.arts, 
um, you know, for hotel jobs and stuff like that. But that's the stuff that got put on hold. So it's really, it's kind of like, it's those print sales, you know, it's, it's the people that are willing to support and buy, you know, a 16 by 20 print for 150 bucks, or, you know, they're willing to get a big framed original. That's like, that's really what has been saving my, my brain over the past, you know, seven months, but it's also been financially saving me as well. So I think the focus in the future is intentionally that new studio interacting with more people, of course, interacting safely, but um, trying to really kind of, kind of just going all in and taking that risk and being like, okay, I'm going to have a public facing space. Um, I'm going to try to interact with people more because it seems like every time I'm able to do a gallery show or a pop-up, people really, really love interacting. I love interacting with them and explaining the work to them. So I think that's the shift is just becoming more public facing this winter, um, having more interactions, kind of seeing what people like to see and what people don't like to see. Um, and going from there, kind of reevaluating after, uh, probably after holiday season, you know, kind of seeing what worked and what doesn't, doesn't work. Nice. Well, Jack, it's been so awesome sitting down talking to you. I think, uh, you know, I look forward to, to seeing what you do in the future. Hope once we open back up and the world is somewhat back to normal, the new normal, I'm going to start using that. I started thinking about it. I'm like, actually, that's a pretty accurate description. Yeah. Um, I hope you come to the campus and, uh, you know, check it out and see uh, some of the students. Oh, I'd love to. I appreciate that so much. And yeah, when, when you guys get open back up, I'd, I'd love to come meet some of the students and kind of see what everyone's working on. That would be, that would be a blast. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks everyone for tuning in to this episode. You can find links and images from today's guest on our website, rimcad.edu forward slash remotely creative. Don't forget, our guests also want to answer your specific questions, which can be submitted to remotelycreative at rimcad.edu. That's R-M-C-A-D dot E-D-U. Make sure you subscribe to Remotely Creative wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Special thanks to our team here, Gretchen Marie Schaefer, Chris Daly, Mel Kern, Neely Patton, Josh Smith, and Madeline Austin for making today's episode possible. Thanks, everyone. Take care of yourselves and each other.